In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey, Fever Dreamers, it's V Spear, and we've got a mini-sode for you, just a little nap, not a full fever dream. This week, Taylor Lorenz, the author of Extremely Online and a journalist at The Washington Post, released an interview with the creator of Libs of TikTok. Libs of TikTok is a Twitter account that scrapes TikTok for left-leaning creators, mostly queer teachers and librarians, and then posts it to Twitter, adding hostile, mocking, or derogatory commentary to it. Libs of TikTok's tweets have been followed by bomb threats at children's hospitals and schools and death threats to educators. Chaya Rachik, the woman behind the account, has bragged, quote, they, the media, made up the term stochastic terrorist for us. So honestly, like, that makes me feel really important. Stochastic terrorism is defined as political or media figures publicly demonizing a person or group in such a way that it inspires supporters of that public figure to commit a violent act against the target of their speech. Here with us now is Taylor Lorenz, the journalist who first unmasked Chaya as the creator of Lives of TikTok. Taylor, welcome to American Fever Dream. Thank you for having me. So this week, you conducted one of the most unusual, painful, and dare I say, unhinged interviews of our generation, in which Chaya Rachik espoused replacement theory rhetoric, said trans ideology isn't real, described herself as a journalist and as a teacher, and then, for some reason, still unbeknown to me, showed you a picture of a blowjob in the middle of you asking her a question. Normal behavior. Average, average uh, interview. Yeah. (laughs) Why did you do this interview? So I had made several attempts to reach out to her um, through direct message. I basically had sent her several messages asking for comment um, and hoping to speak with her. Um, I do this for every story and every time I write about her. And she always usually replies with some weird message with sexual innuendo. Um, It's very strange. And what do you mean by that, though? So, you know, it's really weird. Um, You know, oftentimes when I reach out to her, she kind of makes weird sort of jokes about me, like saying, you know, like, are you obsessed with me? Or, you know, are we dating? Or, you know, just these weird kind of like awkward jokes that I just sort of don't ever acknowledge. And I really just say like, look, I'm looking to get comment, right? In this case, she said, "Um, I will give you comment only in person. Hmm. And I thought, fantastic, because I've wanted to meet this lady forever and see what she's like. And also she refuses to ever respond to my questions over DM. And so it's really hard to avoid a journalist in person. You have to physically run away. So um, I thought this is a fantastic opportunity and um, I'm absolutely going to take it. Um, I spoke to many people, obviously, before accepting. I spoke to my editor and then I also spoke to a bunch of LGBTQ people, not only the people in my story, but also just LGBTQ activists, um, other LGBTQ reporters, journalists, people that I was, other journalists that cover extremism that have covered her. And I'm like, okay, guys, what do you, you know, what do you think I should ask her if I do have the opportunity? Initially, we were only supposed to talk for five minutes. Mm -hmm. She said she would give me five minutes. So I really just wanted to get comment 
on as much as I could (laughs) in as fast of a time as possible. So yeah, I said, let's great. Let's meet for coffee tomorrow. I still can't believe you met with her because when it came up on my screen, I was like, why would she meet with you? Someone who's been critical, who's who was originally responsible for the unmasking of her in the in the first place. And I initially at the beginning, I was a little bit worried for you. Got to be honest. I was like, this is going to be a setup. This is going to be some sort of punking. But she didn't do anything. No. And here's what's so funny. I have covered I have covered. First of all, my job is to cover content creators. So I am so prepared. If there's anyone that's prepared to meet with someone like this, it's it's me in the terms of like, there's no way if I had even thought for like a sliver of a second that she would meet with me and that that interview would go well and that she would be able to use it, I obviously wouldn't do it. I had no fears about that at all because I know exactly how to handle these people. I have covered antagonistic content creators for years. I also covered the 2016 election. Mm. I covered a lot of extremism in 2017 in terms of content creators. And I've dealt with these figures for a while. Now, there are content creators. The whole goal when you meet with these extremist creators is, as you mentioned, for them to punk you, right? What they want to do is they want to trigger you and get content. And they want content of you upset. They want content of you yelling, or they want content of you looking stupid. Mm-hmm. And um, so the thing that they normally do is they sort of try to troll you and antagonize you. They bring up your controversies mm-hmm. and then sort of catch you off guard. So we sit down and the first thing she does is, well, she's wearing a t-shirt on, with my face on it, which I flat out don't acknowledge because acknowledging it again, just like feeds, feeds that. And so I'm just like, <laughs> but when you, you know? saw it, were you like, that's fan behavior? I wanted to laugh so hard, but you could. And also her entire outfit was just so strange. I was just like, what is this? Um, and then she had this box of masks. A lot of people online know I'm severely immunocompromised. So of course I had my mask on outside because I don't think she's vaccinated. I don't know what she, you yeah. know, where she's been, whatever. Right. So I'm going to wear my mask outside, even though just cause I'm in close contact. So she brings this box of masks and she goes, Hey, I brought masks. Do you want one? And with this social media person that she brought filming her. And I said, Oh no, thank you. Chai. I've got mine on. Don't worry about it. You know, you don't need to wear one. It's all good. Take a seat. And so she just like awkwardly puts it on the table and just never acknowledges it again. And I say what you will about sort of like the Nick Fuentes of the world and like some of these other trolls, they will get the content. Like mm-hmm. they know to, to go on the offense. And she mm-hmm. never did. She never did that. She couldn't control the interview. She couldn't, her questions were solely reactive and sort of like trying to respond to me. So she did seem very enamored with you, like certainly felt very special maybe to have been the subject of an interview is how it came off to me. Um, and I think that goes back to even her saying that, you know, being called a stochastic terrorist made her feel special. It's an unusual person. Uh, now, how did you originally come to know Chai Rajik? Well, I mean, I, yeah, as I mentioned, I famously sort of revealed her identity. Um, you know, as somebody that covers content creators and the attention economy, obviously, I think incredibly deeply about what is the trade-off here, and and like, you know, in that initial piece. I knew that writing about her as, you know, would, would she would be able to sort of like claim persecution and probably get some followers off of that. I think that the trade-off is, was worth it because at that point she was directly informing and continues to directly inform anti-LGBTQ laws in, in this country. And I don't think anybody should be able to do that without their identity known and without, without you know, with sort of impunity. Um, she was also, she's been platformed by Elon Musk, Joe Rogan, these huge figures 
with audiences and platforms way bigger than the Washington Post. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I felt, you know, I had been watching her for, God, like six or seven months by the time I chose to write about her. Um, And at that time, yeah, she was exerting more political influence. And same thing with this, this time, like meeting her again. I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I would have met with her back then too, if she would have met with me. But, um, but I do think a lot about attention and how things will play online. And I don't think she thought about it. I think she thought I would, I think she sort of believed that I was like this caricature that the right often makes me out to be, which is like, I'm just going to show up. I'm going to get really triggered. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get upset. I'm going to fight with her. And that's unfortunately, that's just not actually my actual personality. Right, right. And there's been some criticism of you platforming her for doing this interview, which I personally don't agree with. I was very grateful to you for this interview. We spoke about that. It's also that not platforming. It came out. It's also not. She's bit, How she's do you a, platform somebody with 2.8 million followers who has, you know, is employing legislation? It, that's the point. This woman has 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 political appointments. This woman is informed. This is woman is a political figure. Right. And I think, you know, as somebody that covered and was a huge critic of a lot of that sympathetic coverage of Nazis in 2016, I think a lot of people have a very sort of warped understanding of the media environment. We are not in the same media environment that we were in 2016 or 2018 or 2020 to ignore these figures is to essentially allow them to operate with impunity. Mm -hmm. And the way to dismantle their power is not by fundamentally ignoring them. It's by contextualizing them and holding them to account and sort of reframing the narrative. Because so much around the success of these people is sort of perception and hype. And if you can kind of deflate some of that hype with interviews like this, with, you know, critical reporting. Will Carlos at um, USA Today has done phenomenal reporting on her. Um, you know, that can help sort of cut her off from opportunities and it it can make a real meaningful difference. And also, as you, as you mentioned, as I mentioned you in the interview, like she continues to file these like bogus defamation threats. And I wanted to give people the opportunity to have something to refute the, that with. And and now we do, as she basically said, anything a journalist says online uh, should be considered opinion and it is no way defamation unless it's about her uh, and that her brand is, in fact, stochastic terrorism. So anything you would say that would continue to vilify her would, in fact, reinforce her brand. So, yeah, grateful for those points. That's certainly helpful to folks out there. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. 
Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing, up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. Now, some people are worried that as Chai Rachel gets, you know, a bigger public awareness, which I'm not sure that it is. To me, this feels more like the death rattle than the like rally cry for this type of content. There was a concern that maybe there'll be copycats. People will see what she did. And like with all content creators, they'll be like, well, I could be a better version of her. I could be a different version of her. Do you think that we're going to see copycats of a libs of TikTok? Or was there something unique to the time that she became popular in, which was like peak COVID time, peak conspiracy time? Yeah. So we have seen many, many, many copycats. I mean, what she is doing is essentially building on actually a big growth mechanism of YouTubers in 2017 and 18. They built their audiences on YouTube, but with reaction content and cringe Mm. content. And I've written about this, especially musically cringe, Um, musically cringe. A lot of YouTubers, Cody Co, a lot of others kind of built their audiences by taking content that's sort of cringy out of context and then reacting to it, editorializing it and sort of replatforming it for an audience to kind of mock at, laugh or frankly hate on. Now, she did that with a political lens. I I think that she was able to do that and able to grow so quickly because she really tapped into she tapped into this moment, as you mentioned, when a lot more people were way more online and there was a lot more like the, the groomer conversation was just picking off and she was able to sort of ride that growth wave. I think that the people that are trying to do it now are on the, they're on the heel end. Like that, Mm. that growth strategy is just not performing as well, almost because there's so many copycats and because these people realize you actually have to be quite careful about this Mm. stuff because you can be held liable for, you know, the threats. Like, I think that the reason, I mean, she wouldn't confirm it. I, I believe that the reason Seth Dillon probably cut ties with her is because of legal liability, because every time she posts about things, bomb threats and violent threats follow. As she held up a newspaper very proudly to show when lips of TikTok tweets, threats follow. She was very proud of that. You know, so much of what she does and what I had commented on on my channels that she does is the continuing to dehumanize the queer and trans community and bring forth mockery, platform mockery and hate towards them. But it really is. If you look in her comments, you see like queer people being called it constantly, just constantly dehumanizing of them and how that translates to actual danger and assault in real life. Not that her words killed anybody, but her words contribute to the culture that kills. 
This is something that's not new. I mean, you have a history of covering far-right extremists going back to 2017 even and the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Difference between Lips of TikTok and Unite the Right is the dehumanization of journalists and journalists being these evil lizard people that are, you know, horrible and should be taken out. And while you were uh, live streaming the car that drove into that crowd, killing Heather Heyer and injuring dozens more. James Fields. Yes. uh, You got assaulted yourself. What happened at that event? Yeah. Well, so myself and Will Sommer, who's a fantastic journalist, also covers extremist right wing media. Um, He and I were both at the Hill at the time. We've worked together at multiple places. Uh, And... um, we were covering the Unite the Right rally. I was, you know, I do video content as well as um, social media content. At the time I had a Snapchat show and I was live streaming on Facebook uh, for The Hill um, right as James Fields drove that car through the crowd and murdered Heather Heyer. I ended up, as you mentioned, live streaming Heather Heyer's death and then covering her funeral. I stayed in Charlottesville for quite a time after that to cover it all. Um, and yes, a man came up and assaulted me. There was a lot of violence towards journalists. I was not the only journalist assaulted that weekend. Because I was assaulted right after, and that was right when the police were coming, I ended up in the police station when they were bringing James Fields in and sort of evaluating the video and trying to understand what happened. So it was crazy. Um, and I kind of, I mean, I, I think with all, I went right from that to cover the Milo Yiannopoulos um, free speech yeah. week stuff. I, I think that that is when you started to see a lot of this sort of online radicalization really make its way offline. I mean, I think Charlottesville is obviously like this manifestation of online hate that had been fomenting for years on the internet, making its way into the into the, the quote unquote real world. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, a month later, I, I just decided to write full time because I wanted to cover not just extremist influencers, but this notion that like the internet and, and these social media platforms and these content creators, essentially media you know, media figures online were increasingly shaping our reality and our political system. So, you know, I'm very familiar with the sort of right-wing content creator universe and also how to interact with them and dismantle their power through the internet. Where do you think all this like panic and rage from these people is rooted? I mean, a lot of it is is a persecution complex. Like, let's be real. These are white Primarily, this movement is driven by cisgender white men um, who have never had their power questioned in their life, and they don't like it. Um, You know, LGBTQ people are stigmatized. Obviously, you know, they want to dismantle human rights. They They want an authoritarian male patriarchal government, right, that they control that's very racist, very sexist. And, um, you know, LGBTQ people are very much at the front line of this, right? You see them, especially trans people specifically, because if you chip away at trans rights, you can chip away at LGBTQ rights generally. And if you're able to chip away at LGBTQ rights, you can very quickly dismantle women's rights, Mm -hmm. cisgender women's rights. And you see that happening right now, right? All of this stuff about, and this is what I tried to press Chaya on as well. I was sort of trying to question her, especially herself as a Jewish woman. It's, you know, um, if you start to live by these very restrictive and rigid um, notions of gender and sort of what makes a woman, that ends up harming cisgender women. And I think a lot of cis women and, and non-LGBTQ people, they they kind of write off the struggles that trans people deal with because they think that's a minority or, oh, they have this very extreme view of gender. But in fact, they should really take it seriously because that's going to affect them soon, you know, and well, we're seeing so- that. 
it's affecting them now. Yeah, not just in it the way is. that it's spilled yeah. over to the fact that some people who maybe didn't think this was going to affect them maybe now have a queer child and are dealing with bullying or are trying to become a parent. And we see things like the Dobbs decision, which is the first chip at the attack towards gay marriage, which is for like a whole other episode. But in the wake of the Dobbs decision, now we have Alabama saying things like embryos are babies and shutting down IVF clinics in Alabama. Does all of this owning the libs legislation still slap like it used to? Or are people starting to kind of catch wise that it has gone too far and it is really causing great pain to people? Well, I, I, I don't, I don't think people actually are aware of that. I think a lot of people, they don't think it will affect them. And it's very easy to other these people. I mean, people were shocked about sort of the, the, yeah, that IVF stuff or the, the, the stripping of reproductive rights, but you see this among a lot of liberal people online, this cruelty towards women in red states specifically or mm. conservative women. And it's very much like, well, you get what you, you reap what you sow, right? And that is such a toxic, horrible attitude and also erases the many marginalized women in these states that don't always have a voice or can't vote or their mm. vote is, dis- you know, they've been disenfranchised. So I think it's really important to... Um, you know, to cut this stuff off, first of all, we need to have solidarity with LGBTQ people, because if you're a woman and you care about women's rights, then you have to care about trans rights. You have to. And um, and I think we need to realize that, like, what starts in these states very quickly, you know, bleeds out into federal policy. Absolutely. Now, you wrote a book called Extremely Online. Why was now the time to publish that? Do you feel like we're we're like switching eras and it was a good time to like wrap up the last 10 years and get ready to start the next 10? Yeah. So I wrote about the, the really the first 20 years of the social internet from the turn of the millennium to 2020, a little bit into like 2021, 2022. But like, I think the pandemic is kind of when everyone became extremely online. And I kind of talk about that in the end of my book is like, that was this like, I was going to say great awakening. I don't want to use that oh, terminology, no. <laughs> but it was You're spending too like... much time with Chaya now. We're, we're picking it up. I know. But it was this like moment where sort of everyone was pushed online because of the yeah. early COVID restrictions. And I think everyone became brain poisoned. And I think you see this actually with Chaya, where she talked about the, she actually said the words, I was radicalized by COVID, right? Mm-hmm. She was radicalized in this time where she started to spend more time online because she was removed from her offline world and she fell down a rabbit hole. And I and I talk about the, I mean, my book really talks about the rise of the content creator ecosystem, people like Chaya, right? Whereas there's this alternative media being built on the internet and how that is the true digital media revolution. The digital media revolution is not Vice and BuzzFeed and all these other platform, you know, companies I've worked for, it, mm-hmm. it's the content creator ecosystem. And it's people like Chaya that are able to build and amass power online. And um, so, yeah, my book kind of charts how online influence became this powerful form of currency. What is something that you're keeping an eye on right now as it pertains to the internet culture that maybe folks listening at home haven't heard about yet? Like, can we get ahead of anything scary with you right now? Oh, God. You know, I, I'll tell you what I'm scared of right now. And I, I sound like Elon Musk when I talk about this stuff, but I'm increasingly enraged. And he doesn't give it. Let's just be clear. Elon Musk does not give a heck about free speech. I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, but Elon Musk does not care about free speech at all. But I and so it's very frustrating because when you try to talk about this stuff, people are like, oh, you just sound like, you know, these conservatives. We 
actually have a free speech crisis in the U.S. I mean, the amount of restrictions on free expression are terrible. The defamation suits that are being filed against journalists erroneously to silence their reporting, um, the suits filed against companies like Gawker and others to kind of dismantle their editorial power and put these media companies out of business, put journalists out of business, and just the censorship that happens on the internet every day from a platform level. And I, I know I'm using censorship in the broad sense. Obviously, we know that the government is, you know, it's not like the government is censoring but, you know, I think these tech companies increasingly don't want to deal with news. You mm -hmm. see this with TikTok. You see this with Instagram. You see this with every major social platform. Instead of doing thoughtful moderation or giving users control over their what they see in their own feeds, they want to block political content. They want to block well, what they consider political content is really advocacy content, right? right? It's content about Palestine. It's content about abortion. It's content around LGBTQ rights. I think it's horrifying. And I think we need to wake up. And I, I really think that we have a, a dystopian future. And I'm, I'm terrified of all of these people that want more content moderation. They do, do not see how quickly that is used to silence really crucial uh, political discussions and speech and activism. And how is that pairing with the downsizing of trad media out in the real world? Like where where is the future of journalism? I get asked and they're like, is it TikTok? I'm like, no, because I only exist if people like Taylor Lorenz exist that I could like read your report and interpret it for folks. You know what I mean? Like, where yeah. do you think we're going with sort of the dis dissolving of trad media even? Well, it's, I love that you're calling it trad media. <laughs> That's a TikTok I, word. <laughs> really? Oh my God. Yeah, we um, call it trad media. Trad media, new it. media. Yeah. Um, I think we're in a dangerous place. I mean, look, the business model of journalism is fundamentally flawed. Um, it's been dismantled by these tech platforms. Um, the tech platforms themselves want to just restrict speech as much as possible, it feels like these days. Um, and so I think it's up to audience, journalists to try to build their own audiences online. But I say this all the time. Most journalists are kind of weirdos, like I, myself included. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I came from a social, I was a social media content creator and blogger before, right? But some of the most brilliant journalists I know, like they're the type to spend 19 hours straight, like pouring through police reports or something, mm -hmm. or sitting through, sifting through city council meetings, or like they're doing real important accountability journalism. And they're not very good at TikTok. They're just not. And so I don't want to live in this world where every journalist has to have a personal brand and be a content marketer. Because I think already, I mean, just with this conversation around platforming, people already can't distinguish between actual journalism and marketing content. Where they see journalism, they assume it's marketing content because they cannot understand what actual journalism looks like. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's not going in a good place. I don't see things getting better. But I, I really, I give, I really pray that, like, maybe what is it, the Gen Alpha who's coming next? If they can get off Skibbity Toilet for a minute, maybe they will be the future of journalism. <laughs> Maybe they will. I mean, that's how I got my jobs at the Washington Post and the LA Times and everywhere else was because all of their incredible journalists don't want to be a public figure. And so they need they need me, the Flava Flav of TikTok News, just here to hype man for all the trad media guys. Last question, and, and it's kind of a silly one, but did you really coin the term OK Boomer? No, I wrote about it. I, You know, people love to give me credit just for writing about terms. I'm a huge, I, I love language. There's a fantastic internet. Uh, there's a fantastic book that I highly suggest everyone read. It's called Because Internet. And it's written by this linguist named Gretchen McCullough. And it's all about how the internet is reshaping our language. And I 
I swear to God, anytime someone pitches me a story about this, I write about it. And um, yeah, in 2019, people were writing OK Boomer a lot in the comments of TikTok. And I wrote about it as a meme and sort of this catchphrase. And, um, you know, it very quickly blew up. And I've had a bunch of those things where people are like, she coined it. And I'm like, no, I just wrote about it. It's been on to have you logged on? Like, it's been on TikTok for months, you know, but uh, people say I invented Chugi too, which I did not invent Chugi. I wrote about actually how it was a very small term not being used by Gen Z. And then it very quickly, that narrative spun out of control. But <laughs> there's, it really is. Things go so fast these days with journalism. It's, it's nuts of bananas out there. Taylor, thank you for being here. And please follow Taylor Lorenz everywhere she is. Taylor, tell folks where they can find you. Please subscribe to my YouTube. I have a YouTube now. I'm trying. Do not go find me on Twitter at all. I don't. That is not the place. I'm on TikTok and YouTube and Instagram. Just at Taylor Lorenz. At Taylor Lorenz. So if you're going to listen to the audio here, I promise you, immediately log in, subscribe to Taylor's YouTube, and watch the video of her and Chaya Rachik because it is. It is reality television like you've never seen in your life. And you really need the video to understand fully, like, just the vibe of that meeting. And I hope you tip that waiter well, because how friggin' uncomfortable <laughs> was that table to wait on, I'm sure. Oh, gosh. Yeah. They're, I have to, Aroma Cafe, if you live in LA, they're, they're, they're real ones. They're so wonderful. So shout out to them. Check Sorry them to out. bring a hate monger into your space. <laughs> Taylor, thanks for being with us. American Fever Dream is hosted by Vitus Spear and Amanda Duberman. The show is produced by Rebecca Salzmacat, Sean Kilby, and Jorge Morales Pico. Editing by Rebecca Salzmacat. Social media by Amanda Duberman and Bridget Schwartz. And be sure to follow at Betches News on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Betches.